0: Turn together to Hebrews chapter 10. We'll begin reading at verse 19. The verses leading up to verse 19 describe Christ's fulfillment of the Old Testament sacrificial system. The the reason why the sacrifices of bulls and goats are no longer necessary because Christ has come as the sacrifice and fulfilled that, that old administration of the covenant. And then, verse 19, this is God's Word. Having therefore, brethren, boldness to enter into the holiest by the blood of Jesus... By a new and living way, which he hath consecrated for us, through the veil that is to say his flesh, and having an high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the profession of our faith without wavering, for he is faithful that promised. And Let us consider one another, to provoke unto love and to good works, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together, as the manner of some is, but exhorting one another, and so much the more as ye see the day approaching. For if we sin willfully, after that we have received the knowledge of the truth, there remaineth no more sacrifice for sins, but a certain fearful looking for of judgment and fiery indignation, which shall devour the adversaries. He that despised Moses' law died without mercy under two or three witnesses. Of how much sorer punishment, suppose ye, shall he be thought worthy, who hath trodden underfoot the Son of God, and hath counted the blood of the covenant, wherewith he was sanctified an unholy thing, and hath done despot unto the Spirit of grace? For we know him that hath said, Vengeance belongeth unto me. I will recompense, saith the Lord. And again, the Lord shall judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. But call to remembrance the former days, in which, after ye were illuminated, ye endured a great fight, fight of afflictions, partly whilst ye were made a gazing stock, both by reproaches and afflictions, and partly whilst ye became companions of them that were so used. For ye had compassion of me in my bonds, and took joyfully the spoiling of your goods, knowing in yourselves that ye have in heaven a better and an enduring substance. Cast not away, therefore, your confidence, which hath great recompense of reward. For ye have need of patience, that after ye have done the will of God, ye might receive the promise. For yet a little while, and he that shall come will come, and will not tarry. Now the just shall live by faith, but if any man draw back, my soul shall have no pleasure in him. But we are not of them who draw back unto perdition, but of them that believe to the saving of the soul. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. The text for the sermon this evening is verses 24 and 25. And let us consider one another to provoke unto love and to good works, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together as the manner of some is, but exhorting one another And so much the more as you see the day approaching. Beloved, in our Lord Jesus Christ, our text this evening comes in the form of an exhortation. And this exhortation has an important place in the book of Hebrews. It is important on the one hand because It is the application of the Gospel message that Hebrews has been teaching. The Gospel is summed up there in verses 19-21. through And it is that a new and living way into God's presence is opened by the blood of Jesus. That's the Gospel. The application of that Gospel then is given in three exhortations that follow. Verse 22. Look at verse 19. Having therefore, brethren, boldness to enter the holiest by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way, having therefore those things, verse 22, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith. And then verse 23, let us hold fast the profession of our faith, or it should be hope, without wavering. Let us have faith, let us have hope, and verse 24, let us consider one another to provoke unto love and to good works. That's the application of the gospel, faith, hope, and love. This exhortation is important in the book of Hebrews also as a safeguard against the real temptation of apostasy. Apostasy. Hebrews was written originally to Jewish Christians who were dealing with the reality of persecution. That many of these Jewish Christians in the early New Testament church were ostracized for belonging to the church, tempted them to go back to the old administration of the covenant. It tempted them to go back to that old temple, back to that old priesthood, back To that old system of sacrifices that shed the blood of bulls and goats for sins. But as the writer to Hebrews warns in verse 29, to go back was to trample the blood of Jesus underfoot. There is no more sacrifice for sins in that old temple, brothers. Do not imagine that you can go back. Do not yield to the pressure that is being put on you by your family and by your neighbors who are still living under that old administration of the covenant. And what is going to help you resist the temptation to go back, to resist that pressure, is to consider one another here in the church, in love, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together as the manner of some is but exhorting one another, and so much the more as you see the day approaching. So much the more as pressure and persecution increases. On both of those points, the calling of this text remains highly relevant for believers today. This is where the gospel leads everyone who embraces it. The gospel of reconciliation with God through the blood of Jesus, that great high priest, does not lead us to forsake the assembly of His people. The gospel leads us into that assembly. And it does so because the fruit of all of Jesus' work as our high priest, both for us on the cross and in us by His Spirit, the fruit of all of that work is love. That we love Him And that we love our brothers and our sisters. Furthermore, what is contained in this text is the safeguard that Jesus uses to protect His church as the days grow dark. Scattered sheep are easy pickings for that roaring lion who goes about seeking prey to devour Do not drift from the assembly when pressures and fears increase, when the day of persecution makes it difficult to be a Christian. Do not pull away from the assembly. Do not forsake the assembly as the manner of some is, but rather let us consider one another to provoke one another unto love and good works. I call our attention to this text this evening under the theme called To Provoke Love in the Assembly. First, we will see that this is done simply by being one another, first of all, being with one another, being in the assembly. Secondly, that this is done as we consider one another. And finally, that this is done as we exhort one another. Called to provoke love in the assembly first by being with one another, second by considering one another, finally by exhorting one another. The exhortation of our text calls each of us as Christians to provoke others in the assembly to love and to good works. Notice that. The exhortation calls each of us to provoke others in the assembly to love and to good works. That's a striking calling. Ordinarily, when the Bible calls us to love, it just calls us to love, and there are many passages that do so. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I loved you, Jesus says in John 15, 12. Brethren, you have been called unto liberty. Only use not liberty for an occasion to the flesh, but by love serve one another, Paul says in Galatians 5:13. And now abideth faith, hope, charity, or love, these three, but the greatest of these is charity. Follow after charity. First Corinthians 13, 13, and 14, 1. Love each other. We're very familiar that the Word of God calls us to love each other and that each of us must see it as our personal duty as Christians to love others. Love the neighbor. That's the second table of the law. And this is what will mark the disciples of Jesus when they love one another. But here the writer of Hebrews doesn't just tell us to love one another, as important as that is, but he wants us to love one another in a particular way. He wants us to love one another such that in our love for one another, we provoke one another to love and good works. Striking. And that also tells us some important things about the nature of Christian love or agape. First of all, it tells us that love, to love, to live in love, is good in and of itself. To live in love is blessed, it is a blessed virtue to possess and to exercise and to enjoy. A man who is self-centered and without love will find no true happiness in that way. A man who has been taught by God to love his neighbor will find that this way is blessed. To love is blessed. The second thing that this tells us is that love, by the nature of the case, is outward-looking. In fact, love is so outward-looking that someone who knows the joy of love, knows that it is a good thing to live in love toward the neighbor, wants others to have that joy also. A Christian who has love, who possesses love, and sees his brother curving inward, becoming isolated, becoming selfish and miserable in his self-centeredness. doesn't say, well, look at that disgusting person over there. What a fool. He'll get what he deserves. No, he says, that's not good for my brother. It's not good for my brother that he doesn't know how to love others. He's missing out on something important. Missing out on so much joy. She's missing out on so much goodness. I need to find some way to provoke him to love So that he finds the joy and the goodness of love that God has given to me. That's striking. And isn't that exactly what God Himself does? This is in keeping with the nature of God, isn't it? God is blessed, God is happy in himself, in his own life, exactly because he is a God of love. In and of himself, he's a God of love. That's the Trinity. God the Father is blessed. Blessed as he pours out himself to give life and being and existence to the Son of his own bosom, whom he loves God the Son is blessed, happy, joyful as He eternally receives from His Father life and existence and then returns the gift of love to His Father's honor. The Holy Spirit is blessed As he fills the Father with the love of the Son and fills the Son with the love of the Father and fills the Father and the Son with his own love as the Spirit, drawing all three persons together in the bond of perfectness. That's the blessedness, the happiness of God. He's a God of love. And that same God then delights to pour out his love on others, even outside of himself, on wretched sinners like you and like me. He sees us miserable, self centered sinners floundering floundering around in our selfish and murderous thoughts. And instead of saying to himself, Well, look at those, those wretched little vermin who don't know how to love, instead of saying something like that, he loves us. He loves us. And he proves his love for us in the cross of Christ. And he sheds his love abroad in our hearts. By the Spirit loving us in the most intimate way possible by dwelling within us and uniting his life with our lives. And then he teaches us to walk in the way of love with our own minds and with our own hearts and with our own souls and with our own hands and with our own bodies so that we may be the children of our Father which is in heaven, as Jesus says in Matthew 5.45. Because God knows that the life of love is a good life. It's a blessed life. It's a happy life. He shares that life with us then by provoking us through the gospel and by provoking us through the Spirit who dwells within us to a life of love and good works. And then he says, as you look around in the assembly, be like me. Be like your father. Be like your elder brother. Be like the Spirit. Consider one another. Consider your brother, your sister. Consider how you might stir up love in them so that they might learn to love the way you do. The striking. That word provoke also is interesting. When we hear a word like provoke... We normally think in terms of, of anger and contention and strife. To provoke usually means to provoke to wrath. The Greek word used here is actually the word from which we get the English word paroxysm. Paroxysm, which is a violent physical convulsion or, or a seizure. That same Greek word is the word used in Acts 15 verse 39 to describe... The fight that broke out between Paul and Barnabas when Barnabas wanted to take John Mark on, a mission, on the second missionary journey and Paul refused to take John Mark because he had left them on the first missionary journey and the contention between them was so sharp they were, they were provoked at one another that they split up and went their separate ways. But the calling here is to provoke unto love. Provoke. Provoke. Unto love and good works. As we all know, because we're human beings, it's easy to provoke others to anger. It's easy to provoke others to jealousy and envy and bitterness. It's easy to be so provoked ourselves. But can you do that when it comes to love? Provoke it. Incite it. Incite love. Stir it up. Draw it out so that it becomes a force for good rather than a destructive force like wrath is. Stirred up so that as easily as thoughts of outrage come out of our mouths, if we have been offended or slighted in some way, so easily words of love and deeds of kindness and acts of selflessness come out of us and come out of the assembly. Provoke one another unto love and good works. Provoke them. That's quite interesting. But how does that happen? Well, it starts with something very simple and yet so important that without this, it would be impossible to fulfill this exhortation to provoke one another unto love and good works. And that's this. We have to be with one another. We have to be an assembly together. We have to be a communion together and we have to be a part of that assembly and belong to that assembly. Not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together in verse 25 is not introducing a new idea. It's building on the exhortation of verse 24. Let us consider one another to provoke unto love and good works and that necessarily will involve not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together as the manner of some is. In addition to that being the clear statement of the text, it's also common sense, isn't it? You can't provoke love in someone who isn't there. You can't be provoked to love and good works by others if you're never with those others. That's true in all relationships, isn't it? Isn't that true in marriage? How can you stir up your wife's affections if you're never with her, if you're never home? Isn't that true in our families? How can you cultivate character and godliness in your children if you're never with them and they never see your face, never see how you live your life, never hear your voice, Isn't that true of friendships? How can you maintain friendships if you never reach out to your friends, never seek them out, never make arrangements to get together with them so that you can hear each other's voices and see each other's faces and spend time together? How can you be challenged by your friends? How can you be sharpened by your friends? How can you be strengthened by your friends? If you always withdraw from them, especially when they start to challenge you and they start to seek to sharpen you and they start to work on strengthening you, there is no love or provoking of love if there is no presence. There is no relationship if there is no presence. Now the writer puts this in the negative and he does so for good reason. Not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together as the manner of some is. He puts that in the negative because that's what some were doing. He's writing in a historical context to a congregation in Jerusalem or in Judea and that's what some were doing. They were forsaking the assembly. That was their manner they said they believed in Jesus, the great high priest, and that they were his followers, but they preferred to follow alone, in isolation from the others. We aren't told in so many words why some were forsaking the assembly on the Lord's day. Well, given what he goes on to describe in the next verses, which is a warning against apostasy. It's not that difficult for us to connect the dots and imagine what was going on. Some were being shamed, maybe, by their neighbors and by their relatives. Shamed by them because these neighbors and relatives still belonged to the old administration of the covenant. And they said, why Are you a member of that assembly? Why do you follow this Jesus? Why are you part of that group, that new sect that has arisen? They were being shamed. Some felt afraid that if they were known to be those who gathered with the Christians, that they would be ostracized, that they would be kicked out of their families. And so they drew back. They didn't want to identify themselves so publicly with the assembly And they began to neglect those assemblies and abandon them. And that drawing back, of course, did not help the problem. It only compounded the problem because the assembly is exactly where the brothers encourage one another in love and provoke one another in love. The assembly is exactly where the believer finds the resources to persevere in his trials as he's being ostracized and shamed. The assembly is exactly where the Christian is provoked to exercise his faith and to walk with his God. The assembly is the means that God uses to make disciples of us, to draw back forsake this important resource. That's disastrous. It's disastrous for any Christian, especially when that Christian is surrounded by all kinds of voices who are telling him that his faith is a bunch of nonsense, that there is no risen and glorified Jesus sitting at the right hand of God, that it's the blood of bulls and goats that you need, just as it has always been. Brothers, let us Not forsake the assembling of ourselves together as the manner of some is. We need that assembly, don't we? We need it. We need it probably more than we know or realize. We need it for our own spiritual well-being. And not just because That's where we hear the preaching, although that's true. The preaching is the chief means of grace, and it's an important part of our assembly. But we need to be part of the assembly, not only because that's where we hear the preaching, not only because of the prayers and the collections and the other formal aspects of worship that we experience and go through on the Lord's Day, although all of those things are important But we need to be in the assembly because, precisely because we need one another. We need to see one another. We need to know one another. We need to hear one another. We need to be intertwined in one another's lives to some extent. Without that, you dry up. Without that, you draw back. You lose confidence. Without that, beloved, without that, You lose Christ. You do. You lose Christ. You won't find Christ apart from the assembly of his people. That's where he is. That's where he dwells. Which is why drifting from life in the church is drifting into apostasy. It simply is. We may need to examine ourselves on that point as we ready ourselves to come to the table of the Lord next Sunday. How can I be a worthy partaker of the body of the Lord and the blood of the Lord? How can I be a worthy partaker of the body and blood of the Lord who died for him and for her? And for that brother over there and that sister over here, how can I be a worthy partaker of the body and blood of that Lord if mentally and emotionally and maybe even physically I have checked out of the assembly and I have no meaningful life as a part of that assembly? We need to examine ourselves on that point. But there's a positive side to this as well, beloved. It's not just that you need the assembly, it's also that the assembly needs you. The assembly is nothing more and nothing less than the gathering of individuals, individual members who belong to that assembly. That means every one of those individual members is important. And the whole assembly suffers when one or two of those individuals decides to check out. Not to participate. What if everybody did that? What if everybody did that? And there wouldn't be an assembly anymore, would there? And I believe, beloved, That we're very much in danger of losing our sense of this in today's world. One of the enduring legacies of the COVID era is what it did to the Christian assembly. Many have walked away from that time with the impression that actually being present in church, in the assembly, is optional at best. And if I feel safer or more comfortable watching from my living room, well, that's just fine. But as a preacher, I want to tell you, I know what it's like to preach to an empty building and only at a camera. And beloved, it cannot go on that way indefinitely. It simply cannot. And if that's true for all of us collectively, it can't go on that we simply aren't with each other indefinitely. Well, then that's true of each of us. Individually, also. It can't go on indefinitely that we're not part of the assembly. Now I know some of us are not able. We get to a point, we get to a point in our life when because of old age or because of afflictions and infirmities of the body, it's simply not possible. And that ought to be a reminder to all of us. That as much as possible, we need to bring the assembly to those brothers and sisters who are not able to attend. Visit them. Visit them. Go see them. Go talk to them. Go spend time with them. They need that. They need the assembly, and you need them because they belong to the assembly. But in general, we need to be here. We need to be part of this physically, spatially. Right here in this room. Apart from that, we cannot really carry out the exhortation of this text to consider one another, that we may provoke one another to love and good works. That being said, we haven't obeyed the exhortation merely by being with one another. As important as that is, it matters what we do when we are with one another. And that brings us to the second point of the sermon this evening. We obey the calling to provoke one another to love and good works in the assembly when we consider one another. Now, part of the importance of this is the intentionality that is contained in that word, consider. Let us consider one another to provoke unto love and good works. To consider is to think carefully. To consider is to think deliberately and attentively. It is to make plans. It is to make use of forethought. It is to know what you are going to do before you do it and then to follow through with it. It is to be wise. And that's how you know that there is genuine love at play here. Genuine love doesn't just react. Genuine love isn't just a spontaneous feeling that rises and falls depending on the situation and how it impacts me. Genuine love thinks. Genuine love acts intentionally for the good of the other persons and your relationship to those other persons. Genuine love has a long-term view of things because genuine love is grounded in commitment and relationship. Genuine love is considerate. I believe that's important, and it's important enough for us to dwell on that for a moment. We may not just sit here and expect that good things are going to happen in the assembly all by themselves. We may not just assume that others are going to do the provoking unto love and good works, that others are going to do it. Oh, that's the pastor's job. It's his calling to provoke all of us to love and good works. Oh, that's why we elected elders and deacons. It's their job to provoke all of us to love and good works. Oh, that's what so-and-so in the congregation is really good at. That's her spiritual gift. She's going to do that. As if it will just happen spontaneously and automatically. Beloved, we aren't Quakers The Quakers were the sect who gathered in the assembly. This is in England in the period after the Reformation, maybe a hundred years or so. They were the sect who gathered in the assembly and then just waited for the Spirit to move them, to move someone If anything spiritual is going to happen in the church, it has to be spontaneous. That was the idea. It cannot have intentionality in it because our forethought and our planning as human beings will contaminate the purity of the love and of the action. But that's not how it works. We're not Quakers. Let us consider let us be intentional. Let us be deliberate when it comes to our membership in the church. Let us make plans as to how we can stir our brothers and sisters to love and then follow through on those plans. Let us put in place wise structures and then make use of good organization in order to provoke one another to love and good works. Let us consider Let us consider what we have, and let us consider how it may be improved, how always we may be reforming ourselves to the standard of the Scriptures. That's important. Consider one another. But even more important than the intentionality in that word consider is the object of our consideration. Let us consider one another the writer says, let us consider our brothers and our sisters, one another. Consider them. Think about them. It's a beautiful opportunity for us to do that every Sunday. Twice every Sunday, in fact. And I'm not just talking about right now when the service is underway. But before the service begins... Before the pastor and the elders walk down the aisle, there's that time of waiting. And there's different ways that we treat that time of waiting. In general, we're getting ready to meet the Lord, preparing our hearts and minds for worship. And maybe we do that in different ways, and that's okay. Maybe it's our habit at that time to read a bit from a devotional in a magazine or a book, or maybe... We scan over the bulletin. But maybe, maybe we ought to use that time to look around. To watch the brothers and sisters as they make their way down the aisle and into their seats. Not with a critical spirit or an assessing kind of spirit, but with love. Look around you. Look around at the faces, the families, the people. And instead of feeling awkward if you happen to catch someone's eye because we're in a formal setting here, maybe do that on purpose. Catch that brother's eye. And consider that brother. Smile at him or her. Maybe say a quick prayer for that brother or sister as he or she prepares to meet the Lord in worship. Is church worship so formal that we aren't allowed to say hello to the brother who's sitting in the row in front of us? I know we don't want to lose the sense of solemnity that we have in the house of God and we don't want to that's important. This is worship, and we have a holy God. At the same time, let's remember that God's house, God's house, isn't the wood and the brick and the stone of this building. God's house is the living stones that He's shaping and He's building into His house. It's your brothers and your sisters. Consider them, think about them, know them. Let them be in your heart. Let them be in your mind. Let them be in your prayers. Consider them. And of course, that can't only be on Sunday before the worship service, even though that's a good opportunity. That should be all of the time. Don't get hung up on the specifics of this example I'm about to use, but going to church is kind of like going on a date with your spouse. Why go on a date with your spouse when you're already married. Well, it's because the relationship that you have with your spouse needs constant reaffirming, refreshing, reinv- you know, investment. And the whole point of the date is to strengthen the bond that's always there at all times so that you'll be thinking about your husband or your wife the next day and the day after that, considering them, how you might Love them more. Love them better. Every relationship needs those times of coming together. Otherwise, the relationship suffers. But the point is the relationship itself. The relationship that's always there. That always exists. And church is no different than that. We see each other on the Lord's Day. But we see each other on the Lord's Day so that we can carry one another in our prayers. On Monday and on Tuesday and on Wednesday and on Thursday. Consider during the week your brother who's about to have surgery and say a prayer for him. Consider that family that you know is going through a difficult time and reach out to them. And you know, the more every member and every family does this, the more it will provoke the other members and the other families to do the same. That's how it works. The alternative to this, of course, is to consider only ourselves. And that's easier to do than we might imagine. To consider only ourselves. There are many professing Christians who have drawn back or pulled out of church life for all kinds of good Reasons. Well, I don't have any friends there. I just don't feel very comfortable in the atmosphere there. I'm just not being fed in that church. Now to be fair, there can be, and sometimes are, good reasons to leave a particular congregation There can be legitimate personal reasons. There can be sound, principled, doctrinal reasons. Although we will find Christ only in the assembly of his people, that doesn't mean the church is our Lord. Jesus is our Lord, and only Jesus is our Lord. And there is some liberty in the way we pursue church membership. But I fear, beloved, That we're not always so mature in our faith as all that. And I fear that being so used to living in a world where there are so many options for us, so many ways for us to occupy our time and attention that many good reasons aren't as good as they might appear. That actually those good reasons conceal something that's going on in the soul something that we need to resist with all our might, which is that I'm not considering my brothers and I'm not considering my sisters to provoke them unto love and good works. Really, I'm only considering myself. Really, I'm only considering what I want. Really, I'm only considering what makes me feel good, what feeds me, what makes me feel loved, what makes me feel comfortable, what enhances the intensity of my feelings in worship. Because yes, it's all about me. Church is here to provide a service to me. And I know, beloved, that this touches close to home. And maybe your mind is going to so-and-so Who left this congregation, or so and so who is struggling on the margins, and we worry about their place in the church? But if we're thinking about so and so, we're missing the main point which we need to take home, which is this: it starts here. It starts here. It starts in this mind. Starts in this heart. As I have my place. In the assembly of believers where God has put me. And I can either let my mind get wrapped up in considering myself. And how I am so disappointed about this or that. Or I can let my mind consider what is right in front of me. In the assembly of the church of Christ. Here are brothers. Here are sisters. Here are brothers and sisters who may annoy me sometimes. Here are brothers and sisters who may irritate me sometimes. Who may... Sin against me sometimes. But brothers and sisters, nevertheless, brothers and sisters who are in need of encouragement, brothers and sisters who are in need of visits and fellowship, brothers and sisters who are in need of help and love and discipleship, and how can I provoke them if I see weaknesses in them and failures in them? How can I provoke them to stir them up to love and good works? Well, first, I have to love them myself. I have to be with them. I have to consider them before my own needs and my own wishes. Consider them. And when you do that, beloved, it's going to draw you in naturally. And not only is it going to draw you in, but it's going to help draw others in as that spirit prevails in the church or each member considers the other to provoke them to love and good works and to be provoked to love and good works by them you see how important that is it's something worth examining our hearts on it really is Because our natural mode of operation isn't that. Our natural mode of operation is to be very self-centered. And I say that not to accuse you. I say that to accuse myself. And to pray that the Spirit will work conviction in me and in all of us. As we hear this exhortation. Let us, let us, let me consider one another. These people. To provoke them unto love and good works, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together as the manner of some is, but exhorting one another. In light of the context which warns against apostasy, when he says exhorting one another in verse 25, it's clear he has a specific kind of exhorting in mind when you know that a member is getting pressured to forsake the assembly, when you notice that a brother has been missing from the worship assemblies more and more often, when you learn maybe that a sister has been going back to that old temple trying to live in two worlds, don't be afraid to reach out to that person. Don't be afraid to come alongside that person and exhort them. Where are you, brother? Where have you been, sister? haven't seen you. We need you in the assembly, in the Christian assembly. Now, that doesn't mean you start railing on that person or you start calling that person names. Exhorting doesn't mean I'm going to give so-and-so a piece of my mind. Exhorting only comes after you've considered this brother, this brother who may be drifting, considered him out of a desire to provoke him to love, not to wrath, to love and good works. Exhorting means I will come alongside this brother and I will speak words of encouragement to this brother and words of brotherly love. You love this brother. You love this sister. They are a brother, a sister. And it is your love that raises the concern about this drifting and forsaking of the assembly. Beloved, don't be afraid to do that. When you see someone on the margins or someone pulling away, exhort them. Exhort them. Come alongside them. And if such an exhortation is directed at you, because you are the one who is drifting or you are the one who is on the margins, don't bristle at it. Don't say, well, who does he think he is? Who does she think that she is? She thinks she's better than me. Don't say that. Receive it. Receive it however it may be given in weakness, but receive it as it is intended, as an expression of love. And not just the love of that brother or sister who is exhorting you, but as the love of God for you the love of Jesus Christ for you. It's God who joins us to the assembly. It's God who uses that assembly to disciple us, to keep us on the right path, to grow us. Don't bristle at that. Receive it. It's a good thing. But exhorting has a bigger place than just drawing in those who may be drifting. There's an important discipline Spiritual discipline here that we would do well to develop in ourselves. A good place to develop this discipline is maybe in our Bible study meetings. When we're gathered there for the purpose of speaking to one another and with one another. Exhort one another. A good place for developing this discipline maybe is in the family visits. When the elders come to talk about the spiritual condition of this home. And what's going on in this home. A good place to develop this discipline is in the narthex, after church. When we get together in one another's homes or when we bump into one another throughout the week, exhort one another, that just means come alongside the brother, come alongside one another, walk together, talk together, talk together about your life, your spiritual life, your faith. Now that means you have to be willing to open yourself up a bit. Talk about your struggles. Talk about what's really going on in your life. That means you have to be willing to listen to others as they open up to you so that you can speak a good word to them that will be meaningful and helpful to them. That means you have to be willing to speak to others in a way that makes it clear that you love them and you desire their good. And that doesn't just happen, that's a discipline. It's something we have to learn, something we have to grow in. And I think, beloved, I don't know if this is because of Dutch cultural. Background or American cultural background or if it's just a human thing. But I think we tend to be quite guarded. But how can we consider one another if we don't open up a bit? How can we consider one another if we don't know one another? How can we provoke one another to love and good works if we become so prickly Insensitive when someone brings a word of exhortation or admonition. How can we sit together around the table of the Lord if we're not walking together and talking together and communing with one another? And communing with one another, not about current events and the weather. That has a place. A communing about what's going on in my soul. What's going on in your soul. What's going on in our lives as we walk with the Lord. Brothers, sisters, let us consider one another to provoke unto love and to good works, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together as the manner of some is, but exhorting one another. And if the days feel like they're getting darker, and if it seems like it's becoming more and more difficult and more and more challenging to be a Christian, then so much the more Let us be doing this. And the Lord will bless that. He absolutely will. He's given us this exhortation for a reason. Let's heed it. And let's follow it. Amen. Let's pray. Our Father who art in heaven, we thank Thee for the assembly. Thank Thee for one another. Thank you for the gospel of Jesus Christ that has drawn us together and united us together. We pray, O oh Father, that this exhortation may live in our hearts and weigh on our conscience, that we will not only consider ourselves, but consider one another and how we might provoke one another to love and good works. And also, O oh Father, that we might be willing to open ourselves up to the loving provocation of our brothers and sisters as well, that in that way we may grow and sharpen one another and be the body of Christ, not only in word and name, but in very reality and indeed. Prepare us, O oh Father, to come to Thy house again next Lord's Day, to sit at the table together and to eat and drink the body and blood of the Lord who bought us, and who united us together in his love. Forgive our sins. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.